0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for coming. I'm Dr. George Lundberg. I'm the president of the Lundberg Institute, and tonight is the 13th annual Lundberg Institute lecture. For the first 12, our usual host, George Hammond, was here to do the intro, just like I'm doing now. But George dropped out and he went to Europe, and he's traipsing around Europe right now, following the, with his brothers the path that his father had in the Second World War. So how about that? He'll be back. He's just gone for a little while. Meanwhile, uh, we're happy you're here. Our speaker tonight is Mr. Bob Matthews, who was born in New Jersey, spent time in Kentucky, Michigan, California, by way back then, and Ohio, where he's been for like 25 or 30 years as a CEO of a company called MediSync in Cincinnati, Ohio. All of our previous speakers have been academics, MDs, PhDs, maybe a lawyer here and there, work for the government, professors at this, that, and the other. Mr. Matthews is the first person who's not from academia. He's from the business community. And we thought that would be a good thing to do now because I think he brings more real-life understanding to this topic than anybody else I know. The other people are largely theoretical, so that's where we are. The Lundberg Institute is a very small, not-for-profit organization in Los Gatos, California, which was founded more than 13 years ago with the credo of one physician, one patient, one moment, one decision— Let it be a shared decision, informed by the best evidence, and considering cost as a factor no matter who pays the bill. So all of our presentations have been around that topic, shared decision making. Uh, At the end of the program, uh, this is going to be a standard lecture with PowerPoints and all that stuff rather than a discussion thing. That's the way we think it's going to work best. And uh, Bob will do that, and then at the end of that, there'll be time for Q&A. I have a wandering microphone. You raise your hand. I bring the mic around for people to ask questions for Mr. Matthews. None are pre-rehearsed and none are planted. I have some of my own in case you guys don't come up with them. Those of you who are online can uh, enter the chat there, and I will receive those on my cell phone uh, from our, our trustee assistant in the back. So everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. What is it? How can I use it? How can I protect myself from it? And in America, a lot of people are worried about primary care. Is it vanishing? Is it threatened? Is it in trouble? How can it be better? So we thought we'd put those two things together and have a lecture to speak on that. Mr. Matthews will talk about is not just the genome, and it's also not just chat GPT and all that stuff on and on, all of which has exploded since we organized this program. I mean, it's really changing fast. But it's not just the genome. AI can transform primary care. Well, Mr. Matthews, will you teach us how that's possible? Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Lundberg. It is indeed an honor. So as a quick background for myself, I have worked, MediSync has both managed medical groups for 27 or 28 years. Uh, in many instances, we've, uh, the medical groups we manage continue to be very dedicated to uh, new ways of providing care and, uh, and managing outcomes. And we've also spent a tremendous amount of time and energy and money Uh, innovating new ways for doctors to provide better care. So, just at the start, this is a huge topic. I'm very aware that there are both lay people and highly trained medical scientists or practitioners. Let's start with the reality that medicine really, for our purposes tonight, has two faces. Part of it is uh, a science that, by its definition and nature, wants to discover more about the human body, human health, etc. And science always enjoys or appreciates new tools that make advancement possible. There is also the practice of medicine, and although it is science-based, in fact, if you look closely, a lot of medical practice has been taught to doctors sort of as a craft or explained as an art. And in some ways this was very adaptive because medicine is very, very complicated. For a very long time, until very recently, we didn't have computers that could help out. So we relied on the judgment of individuals who could put all this together in their minds and come up with the best possible solution. One of my theses tonight is that medical practice today is presently overwhelmed by the complexity of medical science. And in fact, often enough, patients do not get care, which the science is ready to give them. And we're gonna explore that, not with an idea towards towards blaming anybody, but with an idea towards explaining and understanding how that came to be. So this is not largely, we're gonna talk about AI, but this is not your deep dive into AI. There's a lot of different kinds. George mentioned some of them. They've now sort of graded it to, you know, powerful, very, very powerful, and extremely powerful. Um, It's incredibly helpful when you get to very large data sets. And it's probably going to be capable of finding patterns and things which in complex uh, data sets that are not visible to the human eye or mind. For what we're going to do tonight, though, is talk about a specific kind of A.I., which is a more powerful kind of decision support. So very quickly, keeping in mind that we have lay people and highly trained, I'm gonna trace the history of medicine in uh, two minutes. (laughs) Uh, So the taxonomy I like is at any given moment, what do we understand about the human body and human health? What do we understand about what can go wrong Cause disease, etc, and what is medicine capable of fixing, repairing, managing, or in some other way ameliorating some or all of the disease processes so we 've been at this a long time twenty five hundred years before the common Era, the uh, Egyptian mum- mummification process de- um, demonstrated a pretty sophisticated Understanding of anatomy and physiology humans probably before language have always understood in, understood injury and trauma and aging and There were various kinds of medicinal and surgical uh, practices that go way way back uh, Some of them it turns out were helpful and some not there's perseverant interest for a long time in bleeding people and that didn't seem to help very much, but other things that they did did so then three sort of very important things happened one was the invention of the microscope, and the subsequent, the second are all the subsequent kinds of analytic imaging, etc., cetera, capabilities. Um, and that uh, development uh, then was expanded in less than 200 years ago with the creation or the recognition of inorganic chemistry. Our bodies are uh, organic, I mean, sorry, organic chemistry. It, our bodies are pretty much... Factories. So we began to understand f- deeper and deeper into the kinds of t- uh, tissues and, and substances The things like hormones the immune system we came to be aware of the environment We separated out pathogens into things like bacteria and fungi and viruses uh, Etc that we understood now that not only is there an immune system, but occasionally it goes bonkers and causes uh, other medical problems One of the greatest things that happened in the entire history of medicine was the development based on understanding pathogens of the importance of hygiene. Obviously, surgical and interventional care. And we went from finding natural substances that had a a beneficial molecule to synthesizing them and now to designing them. And at this point, we're at the foyer or the threshold of a new era and that era sort of was launched when Watson and Crick uh, explained and, and demonstrated the genome. Fifty years later, after a huge international effort, multi-part effort, uh, well-funded, it was announced that we, the genome had been sequenced. It turns out that, well, maybe not quite, so it was about 92% complete. And at that time, the genome uh, that they had They hadn't worked with a single person. They took different parts of of the genome from different people. So last year, it was announced in Science that now they can sequence the entire genome. And this year, and I don't believe it's happened yet, they're supposed to publish the first ever end-to-end human genome from a single person. They say that's in 2023, so that gives them a couple months to get there. The lucky candidate is a Dr. Leon Peshkin from Harvard. And when that is done, if you chose to print it, it would be a million pages. Big, big pile of data. So once the genome has kind of come into fashion, it changes everything because humans have a genome, cancers have a genome, bacteria have a genome, there's genomic uh, interventions like CRISPR and uh, customizing the uh, human immune system response. This is far beyond my capability, but it allows the possibility for us to see uh, a lot more of what goes on. And throughout this history, what's really happened is that It's like one of those uh, series of Russian eggs. Every time they discovered something, they would open it up, and inside there'd be more, and then they'd open that up, and it's gone on and on and on. And uh, we certainly know a lot more now than what we used to. So there are all sorts of ways that AI is going to advance the discovery and the explanation of of the science of medicine. And in many cases, it. Science couldn't advance until or unless they had ways to deal, for example, with all this genomic information. It's just beyond the human mind to to kind of wrap around that. That is not my topic tonight. That's the genome part. Uh, I'm very interested, my teammates and I, in asking the question, so of all the stuff we know at any given moment, about the body, about disease, about medicine, how much of that makes it to the patient? Because that's a pretty big, important question. And whether it's one doctor in this case, or a team of doctors who may or may not communicate, given our financial system and the way we set up health care, um, it's very important t- that we make whatever is available and solidly available, Um, to the patient. So why? This is an article from the last couple of months from the British Medical Journal, and it's upsetting, and basically concludes that right around 800,000 Americans either become permanently disabled or die because dangerous diseases are misdiagnosed. That's a big number, and it's regrettable. So what they're saying, in essence, if you think about the flow of clinical practice, doctors and their teams and others gather information from the patient and from examination and from diagnostic tests. They make a diagnosis based on that. They offer therapies and or treatments, and they're supposed to circle back and figure out, is it work? What they're saying is that those two middle are not working for 800,000 people, to the level that those people are seriously hurt or dead. And if you were to break this out, about three quarters of those 800,000 have their problem due to infection, to a vascular illness, or cancer, with about 25% being spread among all other and smaller causes added up. So, now let's go to primary care. What does, in the end, primary care do. There are basically three missions that primary care doctors and their team, uh, nurse practitioners and others, um, do. The first is they take care of acute illness or issues. If something hurts, unless you're critically ill or damaged in some way, you're very likely to go to a primary care doctor who will sort this out, may treat it, or diagnose and treat it, or may send you on to somebody else, depending on the nature of what they think is going on. The second kind of work is the providing of patient, uh, to patients of wellness and prevention. So wellness are things like checking to make sure that uh, we, you don't have cancer, or that if we do, we're going to catch it early. Prevention would be things like vaccines. Um, pediatricians are much better at this than adult doctors are. It's practically a sacrament for them. Um, And the third, and this is a place where pediatric medicine and adult primary care kind of uh, verge a little bit. So in adult primary care, the doctors take care of a lot, the majority of chronic diseases. We're going to get into that at some level. And in fact, 90% of Medicare's money... And 75% of the total U.S. spend is spent on patients with chronic diseases. Makes sense. So when we began our work 20 years ago, we said, this is probably a pretty important place for us to focus. Obviously, we don't want to take care of the acute needs of patients, which may be trivial or significant. We want to do wellness, but chronic disease has a lot to do with whether people live longer and healthily or not. So as I said a moment ago, 86% this year the in total spend for healthcare in America will be 4.7 trillion dollars and 86% of that is going to go to chronic disease. And 6 in 10 people have uh, adults have a chronic disease with uh Four in ten having two or more chronic diseases, so it's a big number. It affects a lot of people. This is a list of the most common, if you're a primary care adult medicine doctor, this is a list of what you see day in and day out, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, heart disease, etc. And what we know, it's very clear and well-established, is that when such diseases are poorly controlled, they already have happened. There's not, in most instances, you can't get rid of them. There may be exceptions. By definition, the patient is not as safe, and the quality of care is lower, and the patient isn't as safe because in the population, you're much more likely to have heart attacks and strokes and amputations, go to the hospital, the emergency room, have to have all kinds of cardiac procedures, et cetera. Conversely, if a patient has, for example, blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, and that disease is well controlled, then by definition the patient is safer, because in fact there are fewer of those, the quality is higher, and by the way, all of those unwanted artifact at the bottom there are very expensive. They're expensive to the patient because they intrude on his or her life and interrupt uh, happy functioning, uh, may foreshorten death, etc. And they're expensive to the system. All those things start at about hundred grand and go up from there. <clears throat> so this is a happy place where better quality actually is less expensive. And we're going to show that. So that's the cost of poor quality and the benefit of control. So let's just look at a couple of the most common diseases. First off, blood pressure. So there's 135 million Americans with blood pressure. About 70% of all people will eventually get it in their lives. And there is a proposed blood pressure level of 140 over 90. For those who don't know, the top number, the systolic pressure, is the pressure in your arteries at the moment that your heart contracts. And the second number is when your heart's at rest, the diastolic. So the standard advice is to, that we should have blood pressure below 140 over 90, with minor exceptions here or there. But there's a tremendous uh, body of evidence that say maybe it ought really to be 130 over 80. Well, this there's been a slow move to advance this because the theory, I think, there's some medical questions, to be fair, but if you just got a 44 on the test, why would you ask the professor to make the next one harder? So there's some belief in the, among people that we don't propose the 130 over 80 because we do so badly in the first place, we'd do even worse if the test was harder. I'm going to talk a little bit about cholesterol later, but it's just... Basically, we're not delivering the care that is necessary. Type 2 diabetes, about 75% do not get what there's a famous triple goal that your blood pressure, your, um, a, your blood sugar level, and your um, cholesterol should be in, in, in tight. That's not happening. And then in heart failure, and I don't have time tonight, but there's an astonishing 1.1 success rate in getting patients with HEFREF, which is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, on the right medications and the right doses in a major study called the CHAMP study in 2018. We in our group, when this came out, were so shocked. We had all of our heart failure patients were um, sent for heart failure care to one of the two 50-plus doctor cardiology groups that were owned by the two big hospital systems in Dayton and we did not find a single patient that was properly treated. Now you could argue that zero is not a whole lot less than one. So, in recent time, there has been some pressure to do better. And when confronted with the data, the standard response in most medical groups at the start is to blame the patients. They're non-adherent and non-compliant, they don't do what we tell them to do, and therefore it's their fault, leave me alone. A second round of intervention, which was tried in other industries many, many, many years ago, like 45 years ago, and didn't work, was to get an analytic software that combs through all of the electronic health record data and some perhaps claims and others and sorts out and creates a list of all the patients who did not have good outcomes. Patients whose blood pressure is too high, whose blood sugar is too high, cholesterol, whatever, people who go to the emergency room pretty often, all kinds of things. And these are called gaps in care. The leader of one large medical group bought one of these software analytic programs and mentioned to me that they had run the program and they had 240,000 patients whose blood pressure was too high, and this was quite a big problem. One of the reasons why this is not a good way to go at, it's good to know your score, that's not the point, is that you don't want to do quality work retrospectively. Everybody learned in quality theory and practice You want to do it on a going forward, don't make the mistake so the patient's not on the list next time they come in, and we'll get into that in a moment. So those examples suggest that in some instances there's some kind of a rupture in that flow from what we know to what gets done, and We've been very interested for a very long time in asking the simple question, why? Why is it such that, I mean, doctors are very smart people. Uh, We didn't all set out to do basically a bad job. Um, So what's going on? So one way of thinking about this is the complexity problem. Let's take a woman who's 55 years old and she gets cancer. So that woman has a unique genome, genes uh, that may bear or not on her cancer susceptibility or whatever. She also has a socioeconomic status. Let's say in this case she's poor. And that has all kinds of implications on how much stress she's lived under and that has implications on likely on her health status in terms of what kind of care she's been able to get and all of that. And let's say that because she's poor, she lives in a portion of her state which is called Cancer Alley because there's so much carcinogen in the air, water, whatever. And by the way, she has an immune competence. It could be a good, or it could have been compromised. All of, there's a lot of different uh, values in each of these. So now she gets cancer. Her cancer, we used to think about cancers in terms of where the point of origin was. And now we think about, it, uh, increasingly, they think about them in terms of sequencing the cancer genome and understanding what is this cancer uh, doing. And by the way, she has comorbid conditions, and at some point they're going to tune this up for some kind of intervention. There may be a possibility in the future that we could uh, grab hold of or use her immune competence to, uh, in, in conjunction with some kind of genetic e- editing To uh, attack this cancer, Uh, and it may be that she will take some other chemo or other therapy. And by the way, when you do want to give any drug, you have to realize that that drug's metabol your body's ability to metabolize that drug may have genetic uh, factors that drive make it more or less able to do that. So what you're talking about here is because every one of these has a lot of variables, is a complexity. So simple is when A leads to B. Complex is when, first off, you have a lot of variables. The more variables, the more complex. In those variables, there are values for each variable. And so the value for a single val- value or variable may significantly influence or affect the overall equation and how this comes out. There are combinations of variables. We know that in certain diseases, gene A causes a problem, but in most of those instances, it's increasingly obvious that there are clusters of uh, of genes that work together to dispose or uh, prohibit the advancement of disease. So when you have all of this, you then start to generate more and more permutations. And not every permutation is necessarily... Uh, going to be the cause of a different or a uh, form of treatment, but in fact, there is a multiplier effect through all this, and this interaction. So, if A mo- might not matter, but A together with B might matter a lot, but A to matter together with C might matter a little. It goes on and on and on and on, and that is the state. Of medicine today. And as much as it is today, it's going to be more so in another three, five, seven, ten, fifteen years. Because we're developing and producing more on the science side to explain all of this. So let's go back. Primary care doctors, by far the most common of all the chronic diseases is hypertension. And I will ask primary care doctors. Is hypertension uh, simple? And they'll say, oh, yeah, hypertension is simple. Well, going back to 1999, the CDC says this is the percent of diagnosed hypertension patients who have gotten their blood pressure below 140 over 90. It peaked at around 54%. Most people believe that today it's considerably below 43 after the pandemic, So if that's easy, what would be hard? Here in California, there is an office of the patient advocate, and if you have either a master's degree in information services or a 14-year-old, you can get online and you can find out every medical group in the state's blood pressure control rate for patients 65 and under. So they cut out the really tough cases, which are 65 to 85, but it's something. So we're in San Francisco, and here in San Francisco, Kaiser has a 73% success rate, Hill Physicians of 55, Brown and Tolan 35, and the Chinese Community Healthcare Association, 23. Quite a lot of diversity. By the way, around the state, Kaiser is often first in its market, and they have had and continued a major push to do better they used to do even better and that's fallen off In some of the counties they're not as good just because I wanted to be equal I picked a Southern California County Ventura once again Kaiser's at 74 UCLA is at 62 couple at 39 38 and one at 24 by the way a lot of these medical organizations are IPAs, so the mom, the small practices practice under Hill or Brown and Toll under Valley care or whatever So once again, this does not support the theory that this is easy. I had my assistant, who really did not like doing this, form, write down every single medical group in every county and their score, and this is a distribution on the x-axis across the bottom is the percent of their hypertension patients who are at goal. There are 25 medical groups that have a 17% success rate and three that have an 80% success rate. It's hard to believe that the patients in California, although there may be a socioeconomic uh, factor here, are that different. So it's probably the way the medicine is delivered. By the way, there is a study that was done at the University of California in the South, I think... uh, I'm not sure which one, basically found that we have a half a trillion dollars a year in costs to the system from doctors and nurse practitioners writing the wrong medicines when they treat chronic disease patients. So we came up 20 years ago with the theory that maybe we should help our doctors get the right medicines, because it clearly isn't that easy. And we began this work on paper and pencil tools with all kinds of analysis and da da. And you're seeing the work 20 years later, it wasn't always pretty. There's a little thing I want to talk a little bit about for one minute related to um, how, you know, on TV, medical science says this works. It's a little different than that. So let's suppose you have medical condition A and you have a therapeutic agent. The FDA is going to require that you have to get it tested and proven one way or another. So somebody creates a study. That is, a, There's a design with an intervention. There are patients that can be included in the study and can't be included. There are measures that are proposed, and there are comparators. This is the way studies go. If you're treating a problem and it's a simple A to B solution, One of these studies, probably pretty helpful in guiding your medical practice. By the way, after it's all done, the outcome is inevitably going to be distributed or be produced as a distribution. It doesn't say yes or no. It says so many people did what something. But what happens if there are 5,000 studies or in blood pressure, more than 50,000. And it's way more. I don't know how many there are, but let's just say over the years, hundreds of thousands. So imagine you're a doctor sitting in a room with a patient. You've got 15 minutes, and you've got to think okay, all these studies, who was included, who was excluded, who did better, who did worse, what was the distribution? It's not going to happen. It's a complexity problem that is clearly beyond the capabilities of human cognition, even if you're a doctor. And by the way, there are 1.8 million studies published each year in 80,000 medical journals. So the idea that you're keeping up with the literature, and we can go back, there are people younger than Dr. Lundberg who practiced when there were two or three drugs for blood pressure, and either they worked or they didn't. It was pretty simple. Sadly, often it didn't, but it did sometimes. So let's take what we did. There are, we discovered, 13 classes of drugs. Each of these classes may have many constituent drugs. Some of them have differences between the drugs in the class. Some don't. Most doctors, for those who are listening or uh, participating online and who are running a medical group, It's not that hard to go into your EHR and test how many drugs, or types of drugs, classes of drugs, does your group tend to write, or does Dr. A, or B, or C, or D tend to write. Most of them write between three and six classes of drugs. And that's because it's pretty complicated. By the way, hypertension often takes a couple, three drugs to get you in good control. One of the things we learned a long time ago was to try to figure out how to talk about all disease processes in a manner that an average person, and by average I mean average, can understand. So for blood pressure, we encourage our doctors and NPs and others to say, look, you have a pump, which is your heart, you have pipes, which are your arteries, they're filled with blood, which is a fluid, it's a closed system. It pushes oxygen and nutrients all the way from your brain to your toenails. And inside that system, there's a lot of pressure that's built up, and it's not good for your heart. You're wearing it out, and it's not good for the pipes, because if one of them breaks, particularly in your head, you're not gonna like that. And everybody, by the way, has a relative or friend or whatever who had a stroke. Nobody wants that. So we, did a, we tell our patients, We did a study on you, and so all of your arteries, everybody's arteries, have a thin muscle sheath around them, and due to inactivity, age, or genes, that can cramp down and literally make the artery smaller. It's called vasoconstriction. Obviously, the pump pushing into a smaller space pushes the pressure up. But you could have problems with your heart. It could be pumping either too hard or too fast or both. And in some instances, you could have too much fluid in the system. And in many instances, and this is not well understood, you can have a combination. So it could be 50% arteries, 50% heart, on and on and on. Good to know that. We discovered that for $30 in an in-office test, we could sort that out. Which meant that our group, most other groups don't do this, our group is not guessing. And the odds, it turns out, when you guess, aren't very good. And by the way, once you've figured out what I just went through is called the hemodynamics, what's, where's the pressure coming from in the system, all of you just understood that. None of you are cardiologists. Frankly, you could have a sixth-grade education and understand it. Then you would have to say, well, it's very helpful to know, is this patient over or under 60 for all sorts of research reasons? Is the patient African-American? Um, and that is a long story that I can't get into, but it changes the way you might treat. And what other either cardiovascular comorbid, what other heart-related disease related diseases or vascular-related diseases do you have? And what other non-cardiovascular diseases do you have? Because any one of these 28 variables could change the medications that you might prefer to use or you can't use or you need to be cautious when you use. So if you think about this then, there are around 200 million permutations. And as I said earlier, not every permutation means a difference in therapy, but a lot of them do. Not too many people However smart they are and whatever medical school they went to, are going to be strong enough to go through that. begins to explain why do we have 43, 54, 72, whatever. UCLA is 62 percent success. So part of it is to get the patient to agree to take their medicine, And very big part is, can we help the doctor write the correct medicine? So we created originally paper tools, and then our AI solution is attached. Doctor and patient are in the room. We really love it when they share a screen and talk about what's on the screen together. Not all doctors are willing or able to do that. They hit a button in their EHR, and that, all that patient's data goes up to our cloud AI technology in about a second. Happily for us... The government has required all EHRs to have a plug set called Fire and Smart on Fire that allows us to connect to them relatively quickly and easily. It's well known that PharmDs, experts in pharmacology, can often add value. We couldn't afford to put them in all the offices, so we decided to put them in the technology And in another second, this spins out and says, here are the drug recommendations in the order that we would use them, and in many instances, down to the milligram. That's what God invented computers to do. And not necessarily what people can do when you get to these large data sets. And this, by the way, is our screen that explains to the patient, in this case... We learn, by the way, patients hate red lines. So the story here is your arteries are too tight and your heart is going too fast and you're wearing both of them out. We're going to give you medicine that's going to slow your heart down and open your arteries up. And if you give that little bit of explanation, it is astonishing how many patients will take their medicine. If I tell them that their blood pressure is 165 over 93... What does that mean? 165 might be the bowling score they've always wanted to get to. (laughs) So it turns out it works. We introduced this technology in our medical group and then subsequently in others. This, to our knowledge, is the best hypertension outcome in the nation. Remarkable, in part, you can see the difference between the national average of 44% to this, we're double. And that means, I'll show you in a minute, more patients living longer, healthier, not having a heart attack, not having a stroke, saving money from the, uh, from the system. More astonishing is that one of our offices embedded in this, are all of our diagnosed hypertension, one of our offices is staffed by some African-American doctors who preferentially wanted to serve an underserved community and who are very focused on the heart health and blood pressure health and diabetes health of their patients. So this is their subset population baked into the number above. You can see that they took a bigger hit in the pandemic, not a surprise, but this population is in socioeconomically challenged zip codes, and a lot of them are Medicare, Medicaid, or uninsured, the majority. And if you look at where they got to after the pandemic, 21, 22, whatever, I will just tell you that there's another small medical group that's rather known or well-known for its heart care in Ohio, a little outfit called the Cleveland Clinic. Their blood pressure control rate across at 140 is about 70%. So our inner city African-American poor people are 20% better than their suburban people in Cleveland which I feel, and I think all our doctors feel, very good about. So there are all kinds of outcomes that you can measure in terms of uh, better than the national average, better than the average bear. Uh, Costs are lower. uh, $198 savings per person per month among uh, diabetes. uh, We have fewer inpatient costs, fewer admissions, fewer high-cost patients. This is good for people, and good for a system. So I'm gonna talk very, very quickly about uh, cholesterol. Dr. Lundberg didn't want me to, because it's somewhat controversial, but quickly. In 2013, there was a very, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart, and all of these other uh, entities published a, a recommendation, and it was very simple. If a patient came in, they either needed just to watch their diet and exercise or they needed a medium-sized statin if they could tolerate it or they needed a big statin. So none, medium, large. That was everybody. It was highly controversial because lipidologists, cardiologists, uh, uh, end- uh, endocrinologists, they were, were constantly saying, we're under-recognizing this disease, etc. So they put together a much larger thing, American Heart, American College of Cardiology, all of those letters or big uh, American Diabetes Association, and go on and on and on. And they came up with a new standard in 2018. And in the new standard, every individual has his or her own cholesterol LDL goal, based on 82 different variables. And there are a wide variety of recommendations. Sadly, they're not used. And the reason they're not used is that they're too complicated for anybody to remember. It'd take you 45 minutes to go find all the data, etc. And so each doctor, you come in and say, I'm at 120 on my LDL and you're at 90. Works for me, doesn't work for me. 500,000 people doing whatever they do. This, by the way, is the first three pages of a 17-page summarized decision tree. And so you're missing the last 14 pages, but it gets really good towards the end. When we did this, what we discovered is, and we were better than the average group anyway... That somewhere between 45 and 50 percent of our patients were being undertreated as compared to the new standard. So in the minute here, I'm gonna go in a slightly different direction and talk about healthcare delivery in comparison. George mentioned that I'm represent a business perspective, I'm also pretty highly trained in quality science. Um, and so It turns out lots of businesses have a lot of complexity, and most of them handle their complexity better than we do. So let's go back to 1945. The war is over. GIs are returning. Some go to school. Some go back to their family right away. They're anxious. They want washing machines and dryers and furnishings and cars and all that. And the people who ran the American car industry said, what we're really going to focus on is driving down our manufacturing costs to the lowest possible level, often by speeding things up, and we'll attract new customers by style. It was called in the business throwing chrome. Fins, remember, that was the day when they did all that stuff. They did not focus on quality, and they did not focus on fuel efficiency, and in fact, Large-bore engines were all the rage, and they used more fuel. After this, in the same time frame, the Japanese industrial base was devastated, and they had no position in the world economy. So they decided uh, to adopt an American Ph.D. in statistics who taught them that Everything was about quality. And to build a perfect car, a perfect TV set, a perfect washing machine, or whatever, you had to start and make perfect screws. And then you had to make perfect fasteners. And then you had to make perfect uh, carburetors and transmissions all the way up. And this pursuit of perfection went on and on and on, As it happened, Japan also didn't have any oil reserves, so they focused on saving or having great mileage. And uh, they did not really focus for the first many years on style. A Camry for many years looked was not ugly, but it wasn't really that great. So in 1976, American cars represented 87% of cars bought in the U.S. And the Japanese represented seven. In '73, of course, we had the auto embargo. U.S. cars were really bad at that point. Ford was called fixer repair daily. General Motors was called general maintenance, and people bought the Japanese cars, particularly out here in California, uh, where people do things differently uh, much more than in the Midwest. Um, <clears throat> because they were fuel, and they discovered they were better made. And over the next, starting in about 1980, wherever in the world you wanted, you were and you wanted to make something for sale, you had to become obsessed with quality. The American car companies took a long time to figure this out, and they were 30 years or 40 years behind the Japanese. But eventually they did, along the way... They almost went bankrupt except for a government bailout. And by the way, today, the American car business sells 43% of the cars. Back in the earlier 1976, GM was 47%. Today, it's 14%. All of this, that pursuit of perfection, involves enormous amounts of complexity and solving for that complexity. So you would say, well, that's car manufacturing, it has nothing whatsoever to do with health. But and maybe that I'll grant the position, I don't agree with it. Complexity is complexity. There may be different kinds in different businesses, okay, but it's still complexity. So let's then go to a service business, because that's really what healthcare is. And I picked the airlines for a whole lot of reasons I can't explain. So what do the airlines do? The airlines make a very simple promise to which they are totally committed. And that is, they're going to get you from point A to point B alive. Their focus is safety, 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 safety. And if they didn't have that focus, what they don't focus or at least the focus, uh, the promise, or what they don't promise, and, uh, and or at least it varies by brand. Are things like comfort and whether there'll be more than two pretzels in your bag or whatever, if they even have them, etc. Well, they too have enormous amounts of complexity. They have very complicated airplanes with tons of technology. The, they have mechanical uh, issues sometimes, but rarely. Their weather, people bring laptops that burst in flames, there's just all kinds of stuff, and part of their issue is that we fly about 16.5 million commercial flights in the U.S. every year, which is 45,000 a day, and as we're talking here, there are 5,400 planes in the air. So just the scale introduces an enormous complexity. By the way, there's 125 different U.S. commercial pilots, not counting hobbyists and the like. And they don't want people to go in there and do the art of flying. They want people to go in and do the science of flying because they know what will work best. So there have been two U.S. air uh, air fatalities in the last 12 years. And the last major crash was in 22 years ago. So, what this kind of says to us is that quality science, because that's what all this is, the management of complexity is quality science. And there are, attendant to that, a whole variety of tools, and that's where quality can happen. And we in the healthcare side, especially on the delivery, don't very often use sophisticated quality science or tools The suppliers the people who make the drugs the people who run the labs the people who make the surgical supplies and equipment they do but the practitioners not so much and Virtually all manufacturing and service businesses today that are successful Do this kind of very advanced commitment to safety and or quality however that is defined so the point, and, they, and they do it not necessarily, although there may be some uh, dedication to their customers, but they do it because in 2023, it, you can't really sell a bad car. Uh, in other words, if you're a manufacturer and you produce a lot of bad cars, the word will get around. Pretty nearly everything that people sell today, either hard goods, manufactured goods, or services, pretty nearly all of it is in fact visible to the public but not medicine. You could not figure out who has good blood pressure outcomes, good diabetes outcomes, good cholesterol outcomes, or even sometimes good cabbage outcomes, heart surgery outcomes, in a given market. And that's impeding the quest towards future development. So. At the end of the day, we're going to go to questions and answers here in just a moment. The question that medicine and medical delivery has to ask itself is, are we going to step up? The combination of quality and AI as an enabler of that quality is what is necessary in order to go to the next level because there's no way that our 500,000 or so primary care practitioners can get all this in hand by a few extra lunch and learns or the like.
0: Thank you so much for that excellent talk. i just wondering, um, that is a perfect example of the high blood pressure control using these variables. How, could you comment on how would you be able to deliver a calculated system to be able to weigh in each variables? So based on what type of research you can design system like that for each individual
1: disease. So the question poses, how did we go about doing this? And there's... So first, let's say that each disease has its own complexity, and they're not all the same. The second thing that we could say is that in most diseases, there is an evidence-based standard, and that evidence-based standard helps um, guide towards a certain way of taking care of patients. In some instances, we always included both Specialist doctors, primary care doctors, PharmDs, etc. And in each instance, it becomes a task to understand where in the process uh, the degree of difficulty has become, you know, are, where are the difficulties in getting this done. Um, the good news is that as I mentioned in hypertension, there's a tremendous literature out there. And there are evidence guidelines. Um, We actually did better in an earlier set, using an earlier set of guidelines. And when the new ones came out, we realized that they were actually depressing our scores. So, uh, that was an issue of concern so that was an issue uh, but there, everything we do is supported in the literature and the process often takes as much as a year per disease to sort through figure out what should be happening and then trying to invent ways to help it happen more effectively Yes, there's a couple of other variables I wanted to talk, to add to query you about, and one is the frequency of visit. So typically, somebody with hypertension or diabetes, you know, they they're they're started on a new medication, um, and or they're not, um, and there's a reason that they're not or a reason that they are, and then the, what's the routine follow up? Three months, four months, six months. Um, that seems to undermine the importance of blood pressure control. Is hey, your blood pressure is high but I'll see you three months down the road. Does your system, compen- does, do they make adjustments like maybe you should come back in three weeks and not three months? So you raise a great point. In a quick talk with, uh, I kind of cut to the high points. There is an elaborate process for how we measure blood pressure, um, how often we measure. And in our process, if you come in and your blood pressure is elevated, um, we would want you back in three weeks. And whatever medicine change is made should, by three weeks, be effective. Um, And that's only one... And by the way, when you bring people in every three weeks, it is another message to them that we take this really seriously. And sometimes... They come in, as I mentioned, we use this $30 test, and they look pretty much the same. And we'll say to them, you probably didn't take your medicine. How did you know? (laughs) It would have changed something.
0: In other industries, like the car manufacturing and virtually every other U.S. or global large industry, the information that goes into the systems that makes the quality, makes the changes, has been hard but the social and cultural adaptations have been the hardest part. What are you seeing and what, what are you doing in the medical field to get the physicians, the practitioners, who are the ones who decide whether to use it or not, how are you overcoming the cultural issues?
1: That is a very, very astute question. Um, so well, I'll just make a comment that if I go up to a layperson and say, when your doctor is taking care of you and your blood pressure, or whatever, and there's, you know, 200 million permutations in heart failure, there's 800 million, which is part of the reason why we have 1%. Um, and he or she, your doctor is probably not able to do that. They're like, duh, you know. But if you go up to a doctor, sometimes they're very huffy about it. I was taught this is this is what I do. So. One of the many parts of this whole transformation is, in fact, change, what's called in the, in the field, change management. You have to help organizations go from what they're used to and acculturated and accustomed into a new way of doing it. And it's very well understood that um, even in a, gr- in a group, some people will rush to that change Some people will kind of stroll to that change. Some people will be fairly resistant, and some people will be implacably opposed. And so we have to work with uh, physician leaders who want to implement this and say, don't just drop in a technology and assume that that's going to solve all your problems. To your point, it has to be adopted, it has to be used, it has to be deployed. And by the way, I have doctors who come up to me and say, this is the greatest thing, you know, I got into this business to help people be healthier and and live longer, more functional lives. And this is the best medicine I've ever practiced. This is fantastic. Uh, whereas others are, you know, this is a uh, machine-driven, denies me my whatever. By the way, our rec- our system makes recommendations, it does not write prescriptions. And we spell out why we made that recommendation. Not just you know, uh, here's the magic answer, just do it.
0: How how would a a group practice in the South Bay get access to the system that you're using the AI all the information that goes into it to take out all this complexity, something that they would do in their practice. How do you do that?
1: So ours is a cloud-based technology. In today's world, you don't want to go into health systems and propose that they need to adopt and install a whole bunch of on-site software. Um, What we've built is built in what's called the Microsoft Azure Cloud. It's one of the two. It has enormous power, and it's, it's just basically a plug from their EHR into our system, is a very quick uh, plug-in type adoption. Now, obviously, the, the real problem is, or the challenge is, they need a leadership who make this commitment that we're going to be better at it. And I'm sad to tell you that there are many group leaders in the country that I've met who will say, yeah, that's about how good we are, but that is not my priority at this time.
0: Well, I, don't, I hate to stop the program on, on that kind of a negative note. On the other hand, uh, that's where it is. Bob Matthews at MediSync.com. If you want to know more about this or you want your health care system to start succeeding at a higher clip than it now does. Help, uh, join me in thanking our speaker. We appreciate your effort. Thank you.